KRCL, Salt Lake City. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. On the show with me tonight, musician Chase Gillens of Kid Brother, part of a group organizing a benefit concert, Songs for Ukraine, this Sunday at the Ellerbeck Mansion. It's also a live stream. We'll tell you how to get involved. What is a water lawyer, and how can they shape water policy? Radioactive will help you find out with Emily Lewis, host of the Ripple Effect podcast from Clyde Snow, attorneys at law in Salt Lake City. And then we're going to talk to two Utah creatives, Jorge Rojas and Danae Shandine are with us. They're doing something this weekend called Pollen Path. It's a pop-up art show Saturday night at the Lost Eden Gallery over at the Gateway. And funds raised will support a new indigenous community healing garden in Salt Lake City. Stick around for all of that. Let's get started, though, with our first guest. That's musician Chase Gillen. Hey, how you doing, Chase? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You reached out and said, hey, I got something I'm working on. I'd love your help getting the word out. It's to support folks in Ukraine. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. So tell us what you got going. First of all, local musician, Kid Brother is what you operate under. Yes, yes. How Um, long you been making music? Oh, shoot. Um, Over half of my life. um, Yeah. Yeah, so we've been doing it a while, but I'm not here to talk about me. I'd love to come back and talk to you about me one day. Absolutely. But uh, no, so a, a group that I, I get together with regularly, we're all um, singer-songwriters. We trade songs back and forth. Uh, we have another friend whom is Ukrainian and has family in Ukraine at the moment. Um, and uh, she is actually the, the chef and the innkeeper at the Ellerbeck Mansion, which will get into in a little bit mm-hmm. um but we wanted to do something for her and for her people and we just kind of uh split duties and really quickly in the last few days we put together songs for the ukraine literally in the last few days because tickets just went on sale yesterday yesterday yeah <laughs> okay. and we've already sold 50 percent of them oh wow yeah wow well, we'll tell folks where they can get those tickets in a bit but who's on the bill Sunday, right? Yes. So it's Sunday evening at six o'clock. We have Peter Maxwell Sessions, who is an incredible um, singer songwriter, the most energetic man you'll ever meet in your entire life. I I try my best to keep up with him. (laughs) Um, Liana Monibog, who is also a fantastic singer songwriter. And then my great friend, uh, Steph Cotille, who has the most incredible voice. Um, So Along with myself, we're going to um, play through the night. We've got some raffles, um, and it's and it's just going to be a good time for a good cause. You haven't announced yet where that money's going to go. Do you know yet? Yes. Uh, so uh, Steph Clotille did so much work to make sure it went to the right place, made sure the vetting was right, uh, and we're going with Nova Ukraine. Nova Ukraine, right? Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, they are dispersing it uh, mostly for um, essentials and um, okay. food and you know uh, first aid stuff like that and uh, it just seemed like I mean there's a lot that have just popped up recently uh-huh. it seemed like the the most um, above board most direct make sure it was getting it to the right place yeah. in the 
quickest amount of time because time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. And uh, it's really been heartening to see folks throw together here to either, you know, rally for Ukraine or put together these small fundraisers and get the funds over. Uh, there's a big one that was just announced today involving the Miller family, the governor, a bunch of other large foundations. And folks, I'll put this all in the show notes. It's driven to assist community fundraiser and donation drive to benefit refugees fleeing Ukraine. And I think at last count, I saw on the news today, more than a million displaced persons wow, from Ukraine. So check tonight's show notes for links to that as well. You'll also be able to drop off goods uh, as part of that drive. But on Sunday night, what time is this at the Ellerbeck? It's at 6 p.m. Um, so, yeah, uh, tickets are live. Uh, the easiest way to get them without me giving you the long hyperlink, <laughs> is uh, my Instagram is kidbrother underscore chase, C-H-A-S-E. It is in the uh, my bio, the, the, the portal. You can get uh, tickets to the show and hurry. They're like going super, super quick. Well, and let's talk about that because the in-person seating is very limited, like yeah. 30, but you can also donate and get the live stream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a live stream um, and, you know, as many people as as they want can mm -hmm. can participate that way um so the live streams i think it's like five bucks um and you know it's also gre greatly appreciated um the crazy thing is we've already sold 50 percent of our tickets but most of the money we've raised already has just been uh additional donations from people buying raffle tickets as well as just like here take yeah. this and give it to the right person. People want to help. Absolutely. And this is a, a small way that folks can help. Again, we'll put it in the show notes. You can also find the Facebook event page, L Songs for Ukraine, live music event. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. But I wanted to share a song by one of the musicians on the bill. And I'm going to swap what I originally told you. I want to mention Liana Manabog, a song that you asked her to share with us tonight. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about Liana? She is an incredible person. Um, I've, I haven't known her that long, but she is so multi-talented and just a, just a sweetheart of a person, and this song is incredible. All right. What's it called? It is called Coyote Girl. Liana Monabog right here, homegrown on KRCL 90.9.
my love is you. You are my shining truth. You hold me softly when I tire, turning through the pain and fire. I'll do the same for you. My soul is filled, sweet coyote girl, sweet coyote Everyone plays a role in suicide prevention. Call 1-800-273-8255. Talk for 24-7, free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones, and best practices for professionals. There's nothing like good music. And with your help, we can continue KRCL's mission of music discovery. See if your employer will match your recent donation to KRCL and double down on your support. Make a gift, pick out a t-shirt, and see if your employer matches contributions at krcl.org. Yes, please do. And thank you so much for your support of Listeners Community Radio of Utah since 1979. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive, our nightly, weeknightly uh, community affairs show. Still to come on the show this hour, we're going to be talking to two Utah creatives, Jorge Rojas and Danae Shandine, about Pollen Path, a pop-up art gallery show this weekend down at Lost Eden Gallery at the Gateway. But right now, what is a water lawyer? I've wondered as we've uh, started to focus on water more and more. I mean, we live in a high desert, but this uh, mega drought, historic mega drought that keeps going on, keeps bringing it back up to, to folks like me in the news business. And we've got this great Salt Lake Collaborative that's starting up across a bunch of different media platforms. You'll hear more about it in the weeks ahead. But tonight, I wanted to kind of get it at what sets water policy and this notion of a water lawyer popped up so joining me now we have emily lewis director and shareholder at clyde snow attorneys at law in salt lake city she's co-chair of their natural resources and water law practice group she's a wyoming native interested in the future of western development and resource use and on the personal side an avid trail runner skier and travel aficionado Hello, how are you, Emily? Hi, Laura. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. And it's through this Great Salt Lake Collaborative that I came across you and your podcast, Ripple Effect, which you started on the day the world ended. Yes, March 12th, 2020, the day that we stopped, everything stopped. (laughs) So what is Ripple Effect and why did you start it? So uh, I'm a private water law attorney, as you mentioned. Uh, I work for the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, and we represent a wide variety of clients, agriculture, districts, independent water users. And, you know, one of the things I love about my job is that I get to talk to so many people who do interesting things every day. 
And we really kind of were sitting around thinking about how can we bring a little more value to this discussion. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a chatty Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we figured that like a podcast might be a really good way to have some of those really interesting nuggets of discussion that you might have like at a conference or with a colleague that really probably would benefit the public hearing more of. And so that was kind of the genesis of Ripple Effect. And we it's a weekly show typically. And we kind of interview someone who's doing something interesting in the field or a new a topic. It covers technology, finance, policy. So a pretty wide breadth of anything that touches water. Well, technology entering into the discussion during this legislative session as we talk about secondary water metering. Yes, we have talked about All that. right. Can you explain that for our listeners who may not know what this is? Certainly. So, you know, water comes to the end user through a variety of methods. And so secondary water metering is a secondary water system is a system that provides typically untreated water for agricultural or outdoor use. And so it's a separate system than a culinary system that goes through treatment and basically distribution through large pipes. And so typically here in the state of Utah, depending on where you are, if you're living in an area that has once been more agricultural and historically had like an irrigation company, you might have a secondary system through the irrigation company or through your local municipality. Um, But at the end of the day, it's kind of a separate distinct way to deliver water for outdoor uses. Yeah, I've got a brother up in Centerville and Mm -hmm. he has uh, secondary water. It's not metered. They kind of know when it's coming down. It makes it really cheap to water their garden, water their lawn. And that's part of getting our arms around new conservation measures. It's going to cost millions, though, isn't it, to meter those? Yeah. So the secondary, I mean, secondary metering has been identified as a pretty low-hanging fruit for quite some time. But just because it's low-hanging doesn't mean it's easy. And so secondary metering, oftentimes, because they're kind of different systems in the culinary system, as you mentioned, they are unmetered uses. And so Typically, people just turn it on or they pay an annual fee. Someone goes and opens up the chute. Yes, yes, yes. And so um, there's been a lot of discussion about how, you know, um, we can basically enhance or, or better use our secondary systems. And a great example of this is Weaver Basin Water Conservancy District. And so they um, put meters on their secondary system probably like five years ago, I want to say, mm-hmm. for their initial pilot project. And they were able to see their outdoor water usage drop by 30% without even changing rates, just by telling people how much they used. And so Mm -hmm. it can be a really effective tool. You know, you got to measure it to understand it, right? And that's what secondary metering can do. But there's a word, folks, that I want you to learn, turbidity. Yes. What is turbidity? So turbidity is basically the sediment in water. And so I'm glad you brought that up, Laura. Because secondary sources, they're not these closed canals like the culinary water that comes to our houses. And so we're talking, you know, twigs, sediment, et cetera, and that can clog stuff up. Well, and I also think that one of the themes and one of the reasons that we really wanted to do our podcast and one of the reasons why you know, I think water, um, when people really start kind of unwrapping the layers, is it becomes very complicated very quickly. And so, you know, there have been efforts in the state to do secondary metering for quite some time. But in, in, in having that discussion, it, it became apparent that not every water system is the same. Mm-hmm. And so the cost for one system to install secondary metering may be very, very different than another system. For example, if you live in the southern part of the state, water could be a lot more turbid. There could be a lot more sediment. You know, it could be very clear one day. A monsoon comes the next day. It's very, very difficult. And so, you know, our water providers work very hard 
every day to get people their water, usually on limited budgets that are funded by their water use fees or, you know, if it's a local district, taxes. And so, you know, they're very, very good about trying to be, be as economic as possible. And so when asking to make changes like putting on meters, cost is an issue and not, you know, installing, installing meters across different systems is going to cost different amounts depending on how that system is. Well, you know, the old saying, whiskey's for drinking. Yes. Water's for fighting and water is power in a desert and the legislature has been resistant to this I think up until this point where you can't deny this mega drought when you see what's happening at Lake Powell when you see what's happening at the Great Salt Lake we got to do something. Yeah and I think that you know I am an eternal optimist. <laughs> Good <laughs> one of us in the room is. Um, and I do think you know I don't want to cast a broad brush about about our water policy because I actually feel like we've done a lot of really effective things over particularly the last five years. And so, you know, we have really taken a lot of creative steps. um, And I think because of the drought, there has been a renewed focus, or not renewed, but new for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. focus on water. And so it's important that, like, the the professionals have been working in the field have been working on it for a very long Mm -hmm. time, you know, and and there's, you know, people have been doing this for decades, people doing like me, I'm, you know, 12 years into my career and new folks. And so um, when talking about water policy and the decisions have been made, you know, it's important to also look at, you know, at what level those decisions have been made because the legislature is just one level, but we have administrative actions, programs, policies that, that also all kind of impact what the ecosystem of our policy looks like. We're talking with Emily Lewis, director and shareholder in Clyde Snow and Sessions, about water policy. She's a water lawyer. How do water lawyers affect water policy? I mean, what kind of cases do you take? Um, what kind of, of court engagements are you involved in? So water attorneys, and I actually just did a podcast about this last week. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes, folks. So you can check it out yourself. And we're going to get a clip. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about this field, and I think if you are a smart person who likes creative problem solving and challenges, just jump in because we need all of the smart people here. Um, but, you know, w- the practice, the day to day practice of what we do is actually quite diverse. And so I do anything from individual uh, working with individuals who own a well who want to do a change application to working with limited purpose local governments who, you know, provide water as, as, their, as their bread and butter. That's what they do. Um, I do uh, administrative work before the state engineer doing change applications and maps and, you know, kind of water rights portfolio management. Um, but a lot of what we get to do, especially in our office, is the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, about three years ago in 2020, we passed uh, a very progressive bill, or progressive, a, a new bill, a new experimental bill um, called the Utah Water Banking Act. And so um, I actually act as the Utah Water Banking Program Manager. And we got about $800,000 of funding to pilot the concepts of water banking across the state of Utah. And we have three pilot projects right now. Um, and so is this for, in theory or in practice? Oh, in practice, water. we are okay. we are going to. Well, it is. Um, at the end of the day, what the what the project is designed to do is to provide additional tools to local water users. Because I think in having the water conversation, it's really important to come back to the water user themselves. And we are all water users. Yes. You are a tap person. You are a water user. You, if you have an agricultural operation, you are a water user. You know, we are all water users. But coming back to the folks who are, who are on the ground using their water, because those are the ones who are going to most know the conditions in their local areas, most know their water rights, most know their need, most know supply and demand. 
and kind of ask what do we what do you see as needing to happen because um, everyone knows that things are changing it's yeah. drier it's hotter mm-hmm. there are more people here you know we are the demands in our water are at more at any other point in time in history and they're just going to keep changing and so the purpose of the water banking act was to provide additional tools to local water users to create leasing programs so that they could kind of dictate the terms of local market conditions and so um, we have not yet gotten to the point of running wet water because we're still setting up some of the administrative back behind administrative tools behind the program or working with our pilot projects and getting some contracts set. But I think next year we'll end up actually running wet water um, as a leasing program between um, local water users. Well, let's set up this clip we're about to hear from your podcast, Ripple Effect. It's from earlier this year where you discussed with two guests the 10 strategies for the Colorado River. And can you explain just briefly before we get into this, how the Colorado affects us here in Utah, because I've read the stories over the last couple of years about we're not getting our fair share. Mm -hmm. The Colorado is an incredibly important water source for Utah. So um, one of the things that I think um, really helps people understand why the water questions are so complex is to understand how our state is, is essentially plumbed. And through the Central Utah Project, you know, we actually do bring Colorado River water over to the Wasatch Front through a large series of dams, pipes, and tunnels. And so, you know, almost a million-ish plus more people along the Wasatch Front receive water from um, uh, uh, that project and other projects. And so um, here in the Colorado, it's a big portion of our our water source. And so, um, you know, with climate projections... You know, there is projected to be hotter conditions, which affect the amount of water, and there's projected to be more disruption in when and how we get our water. And so the stability of the annual rain going into our systems and, you know, filling up our reservoirs has been disrupted. And so um, we're going to really have to think very, very creatively as a state about how we kind of build in some resilience for uh, all of our water systems, but in particular the Colorado. Well, and we can demand our fair share till we're blue in the face, but if it isn't there, it isn't there. Yeah. And so I think that that's, I think that there is a real push for um, our, our, our water community to think of that issue. What is our wet water resources? Well, let's set up this clip here from Ripple Effect earlier in the year. You talked with two guests uh, about uh, drawing out their insight, their expertise. Can you tell us who they are? Yep. So it's Amy McCoy and Taylor Hawes. Um, Amy is presently with AMP Insights. At the time, I think she was with Martin and McCoy um, when, this, when they wrote this document. Taylor Hawes is the Colorado River Director for the Nature Conservancy. And I wanted to have them on because they, um, among with several many other partners, uh, produced this wonderful product or a wonderful report kind of about how we can think about uh, different management approaches to the Colorado, both some that are tied, tried and true, but some other ones that are kind of new and innovative. All right. And that document again that they created, what was that called? It's called 10 Strategies for the Colorado River. All right. We're going to start here. I think the first guest is Amy after you pose this question from Ripple Effect with Emily Lewis. So ladies... How did you guys, I mean, this is a big project, you know, like the Colorado River Basin, you know, like there's so many moving parts, you know, there's, there's many states, there's many stakeholders, there's many, you know, demands. How did you guys approach kind of crafting this document and kind of what was your process for, you know, working off those shoulders of the prior work of the organizations? Sure, I'll I'll jump in and take a shot at that. So this project really is born out of decades of work um, with these organizations, as well as ag producers and tribal nations within the basin and uh, researchers and academics, everybody who's been really putting their mind to the issues of climate change and really the overall level of aridification in the basin. 
We started the conversation years ago, basically acknowledging that climate change is a basin-wide issue and that there was this need to really connect the, the insights and the wisdom of, and the outcomes, as well as the strategies of on-the-ground projects throughout the basin, scaling that up with larger basin-wide outcomes that would help the basin adapt to and respond to the increasing aridification effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. So over the years, we came together and, and actually had several meetings where we brought in a lot of people and basically asked them, what do you think some of the strategies are that could scale up that are really are, are effective or thought to be effective at the, at the ground level, but that could produce benefits that integrate with other strategies and increase overall climate resilience in the basin? And we came up with a massive list. Uh, <laughs> sure you did. Really, right? It was really long. Um, and it was actually really encouraging to see how many different strategies are being applied and, and tested and considered across the basin. So we you know, did some sort of configuration and, and clumping and splitting and ultimately arrived at these 10 strategies because we felt there were several strong suits to these strategies. The first is that they represented a scale of sort of tried and true strategies to the emerging strategies. Mm. And then in between some strategies that have, have just started being implemented. So we felt like that's great. You know, we can really draw from these strategies where, we, where there's known outcomes and apply that to some of the new emerging strategies that are maybe more theoretical in nature. Mm -hmm. Also, these strategies stretch and apply from the upper basin in, in Wyoming and, and headwaters of Colorado. Uh, by the way, way down. Wyoming is the best state. I just have to insert it every time it comes up. <laughs> Sorry, before I interrupted you, though, your strategies start at the top of the basin and they can apply all the way down. <laughs> like that was like a little unplanned commercial break. <laughs> For Wyoming. The best oh, yeah, we're keeping yeah. it in. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yes, it, it starts off in the best state uh, of Wyoming and then um, strategies that apply all the way to the Colorado River Delta mm -hmm. and recognizing that climate, again, is a, is a sort of has a peanut butter effect across the basin affecting everybody, but affects areas in different ways. Great. That sounds like a really fun process. I mean, I'm assuming somewhere in the vault of all of your guys' work, you have like the big list that's kind of fun to also kind of see <laughs> where you start and kind of where you, where you end up. One thing I also actually really like about this report, and unfortunately for a podcast, you can't quite see it, but graphically, it's very easy to follow. And they have this nice little snapshot that gives a snapshot of the 10 strategies that is helpful and color-coded. So for those of you listening, if you get on the website, you can see it quite nicely. But as I'm looking at this, you know, what, what are the 10 strategies that you guys came to, you know, out of that big list, what did you narrow it down to as things that the basin as, as a whole could maybe focus on implementing? So I wanted to also mention that one of the things that is appealing about each of these 10 strategies is that they address two or more of the four resilience questions that we asked. And so these resilience questions were a sort of filter that we passed each strategy through. And the four resilience questions that we asked were, um, first, could this investment strategy help the basin adapt to ongoing climate shifts? So this is the adaptation component of the strategy. The second question is, to what extent would the investment strategy reduce pressure on existing water supplies? 
so this is sort of the acknowledgement of water supplies and trying to stretch those supplies further. The third question is, would the investment strategy help mitigate climate change? And the fourth is, to what extent and, and could the investment strategy strengthen economic resilience in communities across the basin? So we were attempting with those resilience questions to actually try and define resilience um, from a climate, climate adaptation, water supply, and uh, economic perspective. So the 10 strategies, each of them addressed those four questions in some fashion. And the 10 strategies are looking sort of at a watershed approach, forest management and restoration, uh, natural distributed storage, shifting a little to agriculture, we looked at regenerative agriculture, upgrading agriculture infrastructure and operations, cropping alternatives and new market pathways. And we took a, a view towards sort of traditional conservation techniques under urban conservation and reuse, industrial conservation and reuse. And then the final three are coal plant retirement water, reducing dust on snow and covering reservoirs and canals, which are emerging strategies that we wanted to include as well. Awesome. I love it. I also like that, you know, the structure for choosing. And I think that's really important because I think one of the things the water community is asked and is going to be asked more of is how do we prioritize amongst many options? And so I, I like the approach that you guys took of having multiple bells and whistles per strategy. I, it's exciting. I mean, those are all exciting things to do. And so, you know, one of the reasons I want to have both Amy and Taylor on is I'm curious about, you know, taking thoughts from paper to action is, you know, the hardest part. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I have some questions um, regarding, you know, how organizations or interested stakeholders go about actually like implementing these strategies on the ground. And I was hoping that Taylor, you could talk a little bit about how from the TNC perspective, how, how you guys take this information and then make it useful for your mission. Yes, um, good question. So just to provide a little bit of context to, I think it's important to recognize that when you're looking at something as complex as the Colorado River Basin and the shortages that we're seeing year in and year out, and I mean that writ large, not necessarily related to the interim guidelines, there are no silver bullets. There's not a single solution that will help us adapt to a hotter and drier future. And so as my team was really thinking about investing in this work and trying to better understand what our options might be, we look at it in a context of multiple solutions, a solution set that allows us to hedge our bets for the future. Uh, and so first, you know, we're looking at, we've got to be able to reduce our water use, and that's more of a reactive strategy based on, you know, in a really dry year, how do we respond quickly to ensure we don't dry up our rivers and create economic crisis in various communities? Um, or undermine our agricultural production. So we have to we have to find ways to reduce our water use at all across all sectors and across mm -hmm. all parts of the basin. The second piece is we have to find sustainable governance solutions, and that might include different things like the water bank law and statute in Utah or mm -hmm. the new interim guidelines. You know, just governance tools that are, are in, create enabling conditions for us to share water and reduce our water use and, and protect those water users. Well, the third leg of the stool came to us over the last five or more years is this need for resilience and our, our need to help our whole system adapt to this hotter, drier future. And so we've been trying to you know, identify within the, the list of strategies that Amy included, 
we we've picked a few that we feel like for the Nature Conservancy are in our wheelhouse in terms of using science to test new ideas. We can try things on the ground. Not only is the Nature Conservancy a large landowner, we also work and live in communities so we can try things um, with our neighbors to test some of these ideas. And then also we work across the whole basin. So we can try things in Wyoming that might look really different than what we might try in Mexico mm-hmm. or in Arizona. So that's been really where our focus is kind of identifying those things that we can do now to test some of these more emerging strategies, as Amy uh, listed. Water lawyer Emily Lewis in conversation on the Ripple Effect podcast, talking about the Colorado 10 strategies for resiliency. The resiliency. New, the new buzzword, right? Yeah. I was like, is resiliency the new sustainability? <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, I, I think it's really interesting. And folks, we'll, we'll include in the show notes a link to the full podcast on 10 strategies for the Colorado River for you to check up on with our, our guest here, Emily Lewis. I have a question for you as we wrap, and that is who owns water? Oh, I love this question. We do. So this is what's so fascinating about water and also, again, what makes it very complicated. So the public owns the wet wet water molecule. So we actually own the public. But how water rights work is that individuals can receive what is a conditional usufructory right of use. And usufructory is my favorite term. <laughs> you, have to, you have to be really careful saying that yeah, I know. on the radio. Uh, well, we'll, we'll be careful. Um, <laughs> but basically what that means is what you obtain is you obtain a private right of use subject to various conditions that society sets. And so like you have to, for water rights, are kind of, we call them hyper-defined property rights. And so, you know, you can only use it for a certain purpose at a certain place for a certain season for like, you know, a certain amount. And it's all built around on what you're doing with that what that water right is. So basically, you're going to get a water right built for irrigation, a water right built for domestic use, or a water right built for like a power plant. Do uh, I own the water that falls on my lawn? Um, that is a complicated question in Salt Lake City. <laughs> uh, we did amend some of our, our bills, I think in 2012, to allow for a certain extent of rain barrels, but, it, yeah. um, but they are limited. Um, and I think what you have to do after a certain size is ask for a permit from Salt Lake City because eventually it's going to be somebody's water right at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And I remember getting a letter in the last couple of years from the state saying, hey, we're just trying to clear up water rights. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have any, let us know. It was a really weird letter. I'm like, did I have water rights? What am I signing away by not responding? And that's something to pay attention to because yes. water rights are worth a lot. Well, yes, they're worth a lot. And also, it's important for the state to know what we have. And so what you're referring to is actually a water rights general adjudication. And so I actually started my legal career at the attorney general's office. And then my first water job was working for the adjudication program. And so what that is, is a large scale quiet title action where basically the water user is supposed to file a claim, tell the state engineer what they think that they have. The state engineer reviews it against their records. They make a recommendation. They send the recommendation to the court, and then the court decrees it. And there's also an opportunity to litigate if you object. But basically, it allows us to say, okay, there are a bunch of water rights on the record that nobody used for 50 years, and now we're going to take them off so now that we know exactly what we have. So general adjudications are actually really important key components here um, for understanding our broader picture. So when you look at the low-hanging fruit, which we talked about earlier, the secondary water metering, I remember in the 80s, it was put a brick in your toilet. It was, you know, monitor your showers, all public-facing kind of conservation efforts. Beyond secondary metering, which I think will be huge, what can the general member of the public do when they look at their own water use and decisions that you might recommend they take? 
So, I mean, I think it's important just to understand, one, how you fit into the system. And so, you know, like where you get your water from and having just, and, you know, kind of gaining some water fluency. Um, and then also supporting actions when you see them. Like, for example, uh, Utah has a, a really innovative ag optimization task force that, you know, gets public funding for trying to experiment and um, test on-farm conversions for, like, sprinkler systems and stuff like that. So I think the first thing the public should do is realize that it's a complicated question and try and get, you know, as much fluency as possible. In terms of your actual actions, um, you know, we in the state, you know, do live in a, a de- an arid desert. And so, you know, being conscientious of, um, you know, what your pr- footprint is in your house, you know, what your landscaping looks like um, is really helpful. That's also a little bit of a double-edged sword. And I did do um, a podcast earlier in the summer when it was really hot yeah. about, um, and I'm totally escaping her, her name right now. I'll remember just a moment, but it's a professor at USU who uh, I said, should we rip all the lawn out? And, you know, what do we do? And she had this really interesting and very nuanced opinion where she's like, you know, we can have very beautiful low water landscaping. Jordan Valley Water Conservancy District has beautiful gardens, you know, that's showing this. But also like thinking about like the urban heat environment and making sure that we're like putting our water where it makes the most sense. So like it doesn't make sense for everyone just to have gravel because we also need trees. Well, that is my fear. Everyone's going to throw out lava rock in their front yards. And I don't like that look as much as it conserves water. Yeah. And I think that there's there's really good. There's a lot of good information right now about ways that you, you can make changes at your home for your landscaping and kind of like what fits, you know, your your aesthetic. Um, that isn't just, you know, blatant rock, but also fits into kind of like broader pictures. Like, you know, trees are really important. So we want to make sure we have like a design, natural, you know, design built environment, urban environment that, you know, creates nice shade that we want to live in, you know, like Aaron Mendenhall, her thousand trees, you know, like that's an important thing. And so, you know, we want to make sure we're making good trade-offs too, you know. Hmm. Tell me about your house. Have you ripped the strip? We, we have. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure you're walking the walk and yeah. the talker all lining yeah. up. It was also a terrible yard, though. I mean, it really, <laughs> I don't really, it was not doing nothing for nobody. <laughs> well, in just a few minutes we have left, uh, looking at the Utah legislative session, which closes tomorrow at midnight, sunny die, right? Um, beyond secondary water metering, is there anything else up there that excites you about water policy that's coming out of this session? Yeah, we had a actually a, a pretty good water session. I, one that I just want to mention, you know, right up front that I think is going to be really helpful because I consider it in my podcast. I talk a lot about grease mechanisms, you know, multiplier effects, uh, HB 33, which are amendments to our in-stream flow bill. Um, you know, Representative Ferry, who um, is kind of from the Box Elder area, uh, is a sponsor. And, and that has um, kind of opened up a little bit um, what some of the provisions and some of the restrictions that were in our existing in-stream flow to be a little bit more flexible. And so I think that's going to help us out with water marketing. Well, what is in-stream flow, first of all? Bring it down to the layperson like myself. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, water rights are, are, are property rights and they're defined for certain things. And the basic premise of water law here in the state of Utah and across West is this concept of beneficial use. So we are, you know, you, you as a private individual get the right to use the public's water if you're putting it to something that helps society. So beneficial use. And so when you think about that, that makes sense. Back in the 1860s, you know, when we got here, you know, we wanted farms, we wanted homes, we wanted, you know, to put that water in a way to make, you know, make society progress. And so, um, you know, because the water law was built in an era that premised, you know, man-made, you know, efforts, you know, beneficial use really wasn't something that extended to the natural environment. And so 
I'm a firm advocate for our prior appropriation system and our existing water law. I don't I don't agree with the we should throw it out because I think it's actually more flexible than people understand it to be. And one of the ways to do this is thinking about beneficial use. And so the in-stream flow bill is um, uh, allowing water rights that are existing water rights to be converted into um, a use that basically can stay in the system, you know. And so that way, if a farmer invests in infrastructure to reduce their water consumption, they can potentially lease it for another use. Or, you know, if someone, um, uh, an organization wants to lease water for for a purpose for environmental or uh, env- environmental reasons, uh, th- this bill is going to allow some more flexibility for that. So what's coming up next on the Ripple Effect podcast? You usually drop on Thursdays, but, you know, as I well know, schedules can <laughs> get off the rails. So your episode drops tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, we had a great one today. I, I walked away just super excited about it. So I interviewed um, a, a, a professor out of uh, University of, of um, New Mexico, and she's an environmental engineering PhD, and her project is atmospheric water harvesting. So basically taking the water vapor in the air, putting it either through a condenser system or through a desiccant system, so that basically we're like harvesting the, the water from the air. And she kept on being so funny because she kept on being like, Everybody just thinks about liquid water supply, but not our atmospheric water supply. And I was like, no, <laughs> nobody does think about the atmospheric well, water supply. Well, it's on my radar because of a couple of news stories over this winter about atmospheric rivers deluging parts of our country, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's what she talks a lot about. She talks about a lot how, like, the these these burgeoning systems, you know, where they work, how they work. You know, if you live in a, you know, like a... Uh, very humid area, you know, this kind of technology could work better. If you work in a very low, uh, you know, low humid area like here, this technology could work better. I imagine it, a giant water elevator or something. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of more like a, a big bread box thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the thing she did say that I think is helpful, that just one thing that I, for, for the listeners that, I, you know, made me really want to inter- interview her about this is she goes, you know, the atmosphere is geographic independent. And so it's an opportunity to allow everybody to access water when and how they need it. And so it's a really interesting technology because it takes a lot of the barriers that are, you know, built into geography and kind of like takes them away. But how would it affect the Colorado? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to tune into the Ripple Effect. Where can folks find the podcast? Um, So we're on iTunes, Stitcher, all of your regular podcast uh, elements. We do have it on our website as well at Clyde Snow. So it's ClydeSnow.com. And if you have a topic that you're interested in, also please reach out. I'm always looking for, you know, what questions water users and people are asking. And so um, it's been fun and we're looking forward to, you know, the next round as well. Well, thanks for sharing a part of the podcast tonight. And it's been a pleasure to meet with you and talk to you. I hope to have you back soon. Okay. Yeah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the Ripple Effect podcast with Emily Lewis. To get us to our next conversation, though, a little inspiration. Don Cavalli and the two-timers with I'm Going to a River on KRCL 90.9. The Utah Black Artists Collective connects and showcases artists of color throughout the state. The nonprofit also offers a mentorship program for young artists of color. More details at ublack.org. That's U-B-L-A-C.org.
Now that you've cleaned your house for the 75th time, do you have a stack of vinyl or a giant bin of CDs that you just don't know what to do with? How about donating them to KRCL for our annual record and CD sales? We're not sure what they'll look like this year, but they will happen. Whether you've digitized your library or just need a great place to donate your record collection, KRCL would love to be that place. Your old records and CDs could help fuel the next generation of music lovers. Reach out to KRCL's volunteer manager for drop-off information at ericn at krcl.org. Thanks. Thank you. Had some folks drop off their collections just this week. Starting to see that all come in. More details online at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! Followed at 8 by Thursday Night Psych Out. The Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. I don't sound like nobody at 1. Illustrated Blues at 3. And A Brand New Day with John Florence at 6. You can listen to the last two weeks of any show on our website krcl.org just click on programs and there's an on-demand button for you well this weekend there is a pop-up gallery to talk about called pollen path down at lost eating gallery at the gateway in support of a new indigenous community healing garden in salt lake city and restoring ancestral winds to join us joining us to talk about it we have two of my favorite utah diy creatives as i like to call folks we have jorge rojas and danae shandine thanks for being here oh yacht hey everyone so and oh, let's make sure I've got you on. There we go. How are you doing, Jorge? Doing great. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And today it's been so long since I've been able to see you in person. I just was able to give you a shirt with a beautiful design that you did for us a couple of radiothons ago. Oh, my gosh. I miss you, Laura. Oh, man. Thank you for being here. So tell us about Pollen Path. Jorge, do you want to start? Sure. So Pollen Path came together. Um, I, I'm part of this little kind of community group. Uh, we, we call ourselves Good Deeds. It's... Um, Two friends, Lara Sharp, Sharp Wilson, who's an artist, and Cameron Carpenter and myself, two years ago before COVID, we started doing uh, pop-up shows to uh, build community with artists, uh, draw attention, and raise funds for uh, for a good cause. And we, we did one for uh, Emerald Project that was really successful and a wonderful event. And so, you know, we hadn't done one during COVID, but then we, wanted, we, wanted, we were ready to do another one. And we've been wanting to do one to work with Danae Shandine um, and Restoring Ancestral Winds because it's a cause that we all feel strongly about and wanted to support. Would you like to tell us a little bit about Restoring Ancestral Winds and what they do in the community, Danae? I'll get, yeah. Um, Restoring Ancestral Winds, we are a nonprofit tribal organization, coalition, one of like 17 in the country. We respond to the violence perpetrated on indigenous people here in the Great Basin, and we serve the tribes here. We look out for one another. Um, we are a voice up at the Capitol. We're on the task force for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Um, so we do a lot of work. We're a small team, but we have a lot of relatives that we you know, um, are in kinship with. And really, I think, Restoring Ancestral Winds is like one of the only coal or coalitions in, in Utah that does this kind of work. We're really important. <laughs> well, I agree. And Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, MMIW, is a campaign that I remember you you starting with your artwork and the, the cutouts, the silhouettes of women. Yes, that's And right. uh, that's been a couple years. How do you feel the awareness has been building? I mean, there's a legislative task force now and more media coverage on it. But what about making a difference uh, making a dent in this well you know even this last year there was like that gabby petito incident yeah oh my gosh 
um, we are getting a lot of media attention, and I've noticed that through the campaign work. Um, and by Gabby Petito, you mean all the media attention on yet another missing and ultimately murdered white woman. The imbalance of coverage. You're really trying to at least get more media coverage right. of these cases. Yeah, I mean, that's one aspect to it. Um, I, I would say right now, nothing is being done to address the missing and murdered violence. But there is so much advocacy. Um, it's a time where we're all really understanding that we cannot go on um, in the way that we are right now with this colonial, colonial structure, the perpetration. Um, we're really protective of our people. And I think what this, what we're doing right now with the community healing garden, you know, we're all so hungry. We're all so hungry for this kind of nourishment and love. COVID was devastating. We're still healing from that. There's so many other things that we're healing from. And this garden, just being there by my, or with myself, um, just everything makes sense once you put your hands in the dirt and the land and that's what it's about and we really need to turn back to that and I think that's what is really saving us you know I think collectively there's so much depression anxiety we all feel the pains we all have our pain and trauma um, and there's this collective trauma as well and I think I'm already seeing it like this healing we're all hungry for it and i talked yeah. to so many artists today like having them drop today was the drop off for the artwork oh yeah so talk a bit about the artist but also jorge your work in particular as an artist has that connection to land as well so maybe connect some dots for us it does and you know danae and i have collaborated on projects for, for years now and um, i just admired danae so much for her work and um, for her art and for activism um, and so, yes, I, you know, I work with maize, right, with corn a lot uh, in, my, in my own work. And, you know, it's something that's sacred to me as a, as a Mexican. Um, but also I realize that I've, I've learned that it's sacred across the Americas, right? And it's spread and it's just something that it actually unites us all is, is corn. And so um, I, th that's, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. Danae came up with the title of the show. I said, Danae, how do you want to title this? Like, what should we title it? And, and she came up with the idea of Pollen Path, which is very much related to corn. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, talk about pollen. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, you know, I'm going to read the description just so I can encompass it all. Um, so Pollen Path is a foundational aspect of my culture, Danae culture. The sweet yellow corn pollen comes from the tassels of a mature corn pollen or corn plant and is only collected by women or matriarchs. Um, it's then used by all. It's distributed by everyone. Like I carry corn pollen. Um, I have it with me right now. Whenever you're away from your homelands, you, um, you carry it with you. Um, I put it in my tongue. It tastes sweet. I put it on my head. Um, I sprinkle some on the ground. It's a way that we communicate with the holy people. It's a blessing. Yes. So Pollen Path is the name of the pop-up. You said artists were just dropping off for this event that's happening on mm -hmm. Saturday. Tell us a bit about some of the artists. Please share. I'll just say um, there's too many to name. There's over 60 artists and makers that, have, that are, are donating their work. Um, I also want to shout out um, Moana Paleli Ho-Ching, uh, who is the proprietor of Lost Eden Gallery, who's basically created a gallery uh, specifically for uh, indigenous people and, um, and people of color. Um, and so um, it's just really been a kind of a wonderful 
coming together of people that are just like, yes, let's do this, let's join hands, let's all do, do what we can and how we can. But the artists are, I mean, some of the some of the artists are, you'll never get be able to afford their prices like this because they're, you know, some of the highest showing artists in town, right? So they're, they have shows at Yumoka right now, they have shows, in, you know, they have museum shows, they're gallery shows, so a lot are like very established artists. There's also some, um, younger artists, some emerging artists, some people are also, we, we welcomed any type of creative things. So some people are, are bringing ceramics and some people are bringing uh, jewelry and some people are bringing crafts and some people are bringing art books and some people, so there will definitely be, there's something for everybody. <laughs> now it's open to the public, no ticket necessary starting at 6.30, but before that, starting around four is a VIP experience. We'll put a link in the show notes so folks can get information about that ticketed aspect, but what really intrigues me about that is this indigenous food tasting um, that will happen. What is that going to be, Danae? So it's provided in the name MMI Who's Missing, so um, through, which is basically me and my family. Um, we'll be cooking for everyone. I think one of the main things that I love doing um, with community is feeding people. Um, it's so important to return back to our traditional foods um, and to share that to corn is indigenous and like Jorge said um, it's just it's beautiful it has so many meaning meanings for me corn and my people corn is life um, and I'm excited to cook for everyone. <laughs> and there's a Navajo tea service. I've yes. not heard of that before. What is that? Navajo tea. Oh my gosh, it tastes so good. It's almost like a chamomile. Um, it's, an earth tea, it sounds like. Yes, it's an herbal tea. It comes from this beautiful plant. Um, it has really long, thick stems. You boil it. Um, it has actually yellow flowers. And we harvest it, um, dry it out, and then bundle it. And it creates this beautiful amber color. Um, the, this tea in particular that we'll be serving is stuff that my mother harvested. And so, yeah, I'm just excited to share that medicine with everyone. And there'll be stories, I'm guessing, to go with the food and the tea service, plus all the artists there to talk about their art. So this is Pollen Path that happens on Saturday, March 5th. 4 o'clock is the VIP, and then 6.30 open to the public at Lost Eating Gallery. We'll put details in the show notes, folks. And we have just a few minutes left. I wanted to talk about kind of a related event because you're the connective tissue, I understand, Danae, up at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts starting on March 19th. Uh, there is a special exhibit that starts. David Rios, you will have to help me here, Ferreira. Mm -hmm. And uh, Danae, you're participating in this work with him as well. You're doing some of the writing, I can understand. Yeah, I wrote a piece for it, and it's actually connected to the garden, too. Um, really, like, this, even through Jorge, like, everything, we were just talking about this, everything just makes sense and comes um, into full circle, especially when it's rooted in prayer and kinship and um, this spirit of what's going on. Like, we could talk about these issues politically, and what I love about David's work is he's encompassing this very fractured universe that we have that comes with all this noise and trauma, um, all these symbolic meanings, and then it just makes sense with his portals. It's His work is so beautiful. And, you know, and the relationality that we've had with um, our conversations about his work and my work, it... 
yeah, it seems like prayer. It's just like prayer. It's There's so some beautiful. synchronicity in, in these events coming together. It's called Transcending Time and Space. And it starts March 19th. There's a special talk on March 18th, also available via live stream. It's and also then March 19th, the talk. The talk, too? Yeah. So so the sorry to interrupt you, but the, no. the there's an exhibition preview. The show opens on Friday on Friday at from five to six. So you can go preview the exhibition and then go right into the auditorium and, and, and hear the artist talk. So we'll hear David talk about his work and then we'll, I'll, I get to, I have the honor of uh, moderating a conversation between Danae and David. Oh, that, that will be really incredible. And then what I love comes with all of this exhibit at UMFA, where you used to be, mm-hmm. before returning full-time to being an artist. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, there's going to be community art making, imagine time travel, and spirituality as a vehicle for thinking about love, loss, and memory. That's all coming up this month as well, folks. So we'll put in the show notes links to all of it so you can check it out. But... Uh, it seems like coming out of COVID is bringing some good things, Danae. Do you think so? I think that um, it's hard. You know, last last year, the past couple of years, it brought us to a really deep space. Um, we can't hold on to those things. We have to sit in medicine and prayer and kinship and relate to one another. And I feel that even in this room, being with you two, like I'm seeing those things now. All this beauty and love is is precious, and we need to hold on to it. What's the website for Restoring Ancestral Winds for more details? You can find Restoring Ancestral Winds at restoringawcoalition.org. Great. We'll put that in the show notes and also links to Pollen Path on March 5th. And the new exhibit at UMFA starting on March 18th and 19th. Which you can find at umfa.utah.edu. You still remember. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jorge and Danae and all of our guests this evening for being a part of plugging Radioactive, plugging listeners into the community here on Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. And the show will be online later tonight at krcl.org. Questions, comments, suggestions, you can email me, radioactive at krcl.org. KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo. 96.7 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener supported, Community Radio.